five suicides and one common friend with the access to the scene. Is he just a person who wanted to help out his vulnerable friends or is something more sinister going on? This is where I need that intro card that I have been talking about. I'm in the presence of greatness. You look a bit lost, but I bet, I bet we have just found you listen. This month I'm sitting down on my fat ass for an extra video a week where I expose lesser known crimes, topics, something along those lines. So if you're anything like me, you have like a hundred tabs open on your phone, on your laptop, just anywhere, just because your brain works in tabs. The Scorpio things and uh... <laughs> It's like only the manipulative Scorpio things can relate. But anyways, so I had this tab open about a cluster of suicides in Missouri. Again, from New York Times. Amazing. Great expose. There was an audio. There was a whole ass article. 90% of this video will be from there. 10% from the actual legal document that I have found online. So I had it open for like two weeks, but I haven't read it. And then, and then I read it. And then my brain was like, okay, this is one of the top five weirdest stories that I have ever read about. I have never heard before just like having this in a random tab, like, oh, I'll look at this one day. So I need people's opinions on this because this just doesn't sit right with me in any way, shape or form. In any outcome that comes out to this, it just does not sit right to me. Trigger warning as you heard from the very start of the video. This whole video is about five men committing suicide. There is a team of suspected voluntary manslaughter, but the whole video is about suicide. So if that is something that you don't want to listen to, I'm going to put a lighter topic in the video below. I'll cover my archive to find that because <laughs> I have not done a light topic in a really long time. Let's dive into this story. This might be my longest video yet, so let's just dive in and then you put in the comments what do you think about this later? Because this is either the most careless person ever that has gotten away with something or it's just the most unlucky human. And trust me, I know I know about luck. I know that this could very well be somebody like me and this is what scares me. So let's go in. So this is all happening at Truman State University in north of Missouri. And sometimes you will be happy to learn that Truman State University is called the Harvard of the Midwest. So you guys apparently know what you're doing. You're really great. Any Missourians watching this video that have gone to Truman State Uni, let me know. Let me know. And in particular, we will be focusing on the fraternity group. I think they're called the 11th chapter of the Alpha Kappa Lambda. Either that or it's Xi or some weird thing like the way that they pronounce the cult Nexium's name and I'm like, that is a number, but sure. I think it's called the 11th chapter because it was founded by 11 members, so if that makes sense to me, somebody will come for me and correct my ass in the comments. But this particular fraternity was founded in 1953 and they pride themselves on emphasizing Judeo-Christian principles, leadership, scholarship, loyalty and self-support. They call themselves a united brotherhood brought together by the common goal of bettering ourselves and our world. Their motto on their website is men of character committed to making a difference. And everybody that joins this fraternity needs to share a mutual goal of achieving a wholeness of manhood that is prepared to assume leadership responsibilities in fulfilling the obligations of life. 
and they promise to instill these values and fortify and strengthen any man that is in that fraternity. But then the university itself doesn't really offer the counseling to match with this strong, powerful fraternity vibe that we have going on. As in, don't get me wrong, they offer counseling services. It is compulsory, of course, for them to have counseling. But if you go to their counseling services, for example, and you might express that you're feeling you might be transgender, well, then they might just call you a butch lesbian, kind of like Ellen DeGeneres. Or if you go to counseling and tell them that you were really overwhelmed by the load that the school was giving you, the amount of homework, the amount of work that they were giving you, well, then they might just blame it on, like, abuse from your childhood, that you can't handle this amount of workload. So it just seems with any story that you would approach them with, they would just try to deflect and put the blame on something else. And what this meant, unfortunately, is that a lot of these students, especially the brothers from this fraternity, resorted to to drinking and drugs in order to cope. But it is only when the incidents that we are going to talk about today were exposed after 2016 that the Truman University actually owned up to the fact that they might not be able to help everybody. And only then, once students would actually come to them and they realized, okay, we might not be qualified enough to address this issue, would they send them to somebody who had more resources, who had better qualifications and specific qualifications to deal with that specific issue. So that is the environment we are talking about today. And within one such fraternity and one such environment lived Alex Mullins, who was 21-year-old junior, who at this time has just returned to Kirksville halfway through the summer to prepare for the new school year. From everything I read about Mullins, it seems that he was thriving, doing his IB, International Baccalaureate. I've done it. International Baccalaureate is like the equivalent of A-levels. That's what they will tell you. In my opinion, it is actually a lot harder. And people who finish it are maybe, maybe just a little bit more smarter and hardworking than people who have finished A-levels. Just saying, like, I hate for this, but sure. Smalins finished his IB. He was into playing varsity baseball. He was thriving all the way up until he actually moved into this fraternity and started studying at Truman University. Here, during his first year, he was really struggling with his mental health to the point that he was actually put on the academic probation. It was affecting his work in general. During that springtime, his depression symptoms became much worse. He started experiencing nightmares, he was suddenly a lot more moodier than he used to be, and he confirmed to a couple of his friends that he did have suicidal thoughts. But then he went home for summer break and he spent five weeks with family and the family was like, no, when he was with us, he was again this thriving, positive man. Like when he returned to campus after spending these five weeks with the family, he seemed completely fine. He seemed happy. And one other thing with this fraternity that is important to know is that they would have their own, like, stand-ups, their own meetings. And in these meetings, people could speak up. So Malins did. He actually said in front of this fraternity how he was feeling. He stood up in front of everybody, which must have taken so much courage, and has told them that he is feeling depressed, but he doesn't know why. Like, he's saying he has a good life, but he just doesn't know why he feels this way. 
which will become important later because they could have probably done something. They could have gone to the university, they could have tried to get him into better counseling, could have tried maybe to commit to welfare checks on him every day, but nothing came out of this. So on one Saturday before the start of the semester, now that he is back at uni, he was just playing a game. He played video games with a mate of his and then they decided, let's go out, let's go to this local bar in the area. At this bar, he ran into, from what I've read, one of his exes or somebody that he might have just been seeing. They started chatting again. They started texting again. But around 1.30, he writes a message to his stepfather. He's asking his stepfather if he's still up, if they could chat. But the stepfather didn't see it at the time. And then as soon as he did, and as soon as he responded, he wasn't receiving any responses. So he tried calling. There were no answers. So his stepfather might not have thought anything about it. He was like, okay, cool. He was out in a local bar and then he just came home and might have fallen asleep. I will try to reach out to him tomorrow morning. But before he could reach out to him around noon the next day, Brandon Grossheim, who was the house manager, so the person who had the keys to all of these rooms within the fraternity house, got on the location and he was friends with Mullins. So he just tried knocking on his door to see like if he is awake, if they can hang out. So he tries knocking on the door and there is no answer. And one thing that you should know about Malins's door is his doorknob broke, so he actually changed the locks, and Brandon didn't have the key to this new lock. So Brandon kind of got concerned, it's noon, he should be awake, so he goes outside to see if he can peek from the window, and the blinds were kind of like partially lifted, so Brandon just like squatted and was looking through those blinds to see if he can see if Alex is actually inside. And what he saw was his friend Alex Mullins hanging from the wardrobe. So Brandon gets panicked, of course, as you would. He immediately starts shouting to get more attention so that people call the police. And he's like, fuck it, I'm gonna break through the window. Like, I need to see, like, if maybe this was recent. Maybe I can actually try to pull him up and, like, bring him to the ground and, like, take the knot around his neck. Maybe there is still a chance to save him. So as he's removing the screen, the window actually was unlocked here and nobody mentions that part enough. The police arrives and he takes them in. He lifts Alex to try to relieve the compression around his neck, but unfortunately it was too late and Alex Mullins was pronounced dead on the scene. So his parents are obviously called, they were devastated, they immediately came to the university and they're now on the scene. And his parents are describing how odd everything was. Like, Brendan is still just there and they're like, why is this kid still there? Like, okay, cool, you found my son, but like, it's very much uncomfortable vibe. Like, they don't understand why he's still there. And then his mom is looking around the room and she's just like weirded out by a couple of things. Well, first of all, she's weirded out why his body was not discovered until noon. Actually, it was 12.25 when the police came to the scene. So she was just like, why hasn't nobody checked in on my son? Like, why wasn't he supposed to hang out with anybody before that? Why the hell was this body not discovered until now? 
But then when she's looking at the crime scene photos later, she also notices that the table in her son's room seems to be neater than she thinks her son would have left it. It's like the small things that parents and people that know you pick up on. And she's like, no, no, that seems like somebody cleaned this up. Like, was this cleaned up before or after? Like, why the hell is this so neat? And she actually said to the police, even though this might make Mullins not look great in their eyes, she said, no, actually, he was suffering. I was actually expecting to see some drugs and drug paraphernalia on this table. And it just seemed like it was cleared out. Like, was it cleared out by the police? Or did somebody else who was there on the scene come in and just has taken these drugs, whether it is for their own use or whether it is to make Alex Mullins look better in people's eyes and not make it seem like he might have overdosed. So the mom immediately starts getting these thoughts into her head, like, this just seemed off to her. And also while on the scene and then after when looking through these crime scene pictures, she is noticing there was this box where Alex kept all of his earnings. He worked at a Chinese restaurant and this is where he would keep, like, the tips, the pay and everything. And when, obviously, the police opened up everything inside that room, that box seemed completely empty. So she was like, where did all of his earnings go? But all of her doubts were left unanswered and the police just ruled this as a suicide. And Alex's mom said, because Alex actually had two siblings, she said, like, once you think one of your children is okay and then this happens, you keep looking at these other two children and you can never feel like their lives are okay. She's just saying, like, it's a really paranoid feeling where she can never calm down and just think that, no, these two are gonna grow up well and everything is gonna be okay. She's now suspect of everything that they are saying to her as well, because this happened. The life at the campus just continues as usual. Some people actually put the number seven on their windows to commemorate their friend, because seven was Alex's lucky number. And Brandon Grosskind, the guy that found him on the scene, he actually got his job of the house manager. So he was kind of like assistant house manager at that point. But when Alex died, Brandon was his successor, which now meant he did have the keys to everybody's flat. And also his job was to make sure that the loan was mowed, that the toilets were flushing, that everything was working fine. If somebody was to get sick after a night out, that it got cleaned up. All of that. So to make sure that everything is just working fine, that the cleaners are coming, that everything is clean and everything is sorted on the property. So after Alex's death, Brandon just seemed to have been there. What I mean by that is Alex's mom remembers she would come to pick up the belongings and Brandon would just be there. And of course, it makes sense for him to be there. Like he's quite literally the guy's successor now. He was always this assistant house manager. He always had the keys to the property. But the mom just always got this off energy from Brandon. Like he was there to hand her the belongings to her son. Why wasn't it his tutor? Why wasn't it somebody from university? Also then there was a memorial, obviously, and funeral service 
for Alex. And Brandon is just always there. And it makes sense because the two of them are friends. They used to get high. They used to play this game called Overwatch together. So it did make sense. Like they were friends. It wasn't like somebody completely unknown inserting themselves into this situation and like exploiting family's grief. But mom just always found it weird. Like why is it always him? And then, of course, when she got the belongings from the university, she did what you and me would do. <laughs> Anybody in true crime. They would just go through the person's phone. They're like, okay, so it's a, let, let's, let's investigate this. Let's just see whether this is 100% correct. Who was he chatting with? What were his conversations before his death like? Let's see if this is 100% correct and if there is anybody to blame. If there is anybody who could have maybe done something. And as soon as Brandon noticed the activity on Alex's Facebook, because his mom was on it, on her phone, he got just weirded out by it. He immediately sent a message on this account. Who is this? What are you doing here? And Alex's mom was like, okay, cool. He was spooked out, of course. Anybody would have been like, it's a dead person. And then suddenly you see them online somewhere on a social media platform. So she just explained, it's Alex's mom. I have his phone in my possession. Like, calm the hell down, Brendan. And after that, he seemed all friendly. But then the next day, when his mom logged into Alex's Facebook page, she saw that it was memorialized. I didn't know what that meant, but it means that the person can't actually post from that page any longer. And the mom immediately suspected that Brandon has done this, but to this day, Brandon said he didn't. So many unanswered questions. So many. But the mom dropped it. She was like, okay, it's fine. It's a concerned friend. Of course, he was spooked with his Facebook page. It is weird that he is popping up every now and then. But but fine, I need to drop this for my own sanity. But then a month after this Facebook altercation with the mom, there was actually suicide awareness march in Alex's name in the city. And Brandon was, of course, there. But then she remembered that after this march, there was kind of like a small reception to again commemorate Alex, to make sure that everybody can speak openly about these topics. And Brandon just stayed there. And a couple of people also said it just looked like he has taken a role of Alex's friend. They were like, yeah, the two of them were fine, but it was never to this level where you would have seen this person with somebody like every day, all day long. Like, yeah, they were mates, but they were never this close of a mate. And not just that, but at this reception, people kept noticing, and Alex's mom, of course, noticed that Brendan actually had a new tattoo. And he had a new tat of the number seven, like huge ass tattoo. Like you could not miss that thing for the world. And everybody was just like, oh my god, is he playing a role here? Or is he really just devastated? It's just creepy. This guy is popping up everywhere. You can't discard it because he was his friend. There were reasons for him to be there. And he might have as well been as vulnerable. But people were just very much spooked. Three weeks pass after Alex Mullins' death and the fraternity decides to throw this party. Remember parties? Remember how you would go into the room and be like, okay, there is a bit of strong energy coming out from this corner. There's some argument going on. Let's leave them alone. 
and one person in that argument was Jake Hughes, and the other person was his girlfriend. And they were drinking, and I think, like, his girlfriend kind of, like, broke his bong, and he was just, like, pissed off, and then, like, just was a bit more louder than usual. And Jake was one of the Fred brothers. He was also good friend with Malins, and he was the secretary of the fraternity. He was super popular within this friend group. He played the guitar, and people knew that he liked to draw as well. So he was a creative one within the fraternity. And the timeline here is a bit unclear, but what people have known is that Grosskind promised to sort of watch over Jake Hughes because in one of the fraternity meetings post-Alex Mullins' death, Jake Hughes actually said that he was having suicidal thoughts himself. But then after this argument with his girlfriend, the girlfriend just decided, I'm gonna go home and I'll party some other time. And it is not known if Jake told to Brendan to give his girl a ride home or whether Brendan volunteered to do it himself. But Jake does tell Brendan that he has enough friends around him to take care of him. Like, don't worry about me, just give her a ride home so that I know that she is safe. So Brendan does. After dropping the girlfriend home, Grossheim tells her, like, I'm there for you, like, if you need anything, just, you know, get in touch, it's gonna be fine, you know, like, the two of you will make up tomorrow, it's fine, it was just, like, a bong that you broke, it's chill. And then he returns to this party, and then at this party he's, like, trying to have fun, and he remembers, wait, where is my friend, where is Jake? Like, has anybody seen him? And he kind of gets into, like, the panic mode, starts searching through this place, and then realizes, what am I doing? Like, I have the key to his room. Let's go and check his room. So he does. And for the second time, within the three weeks, he opens the door to somebody's room, and he finds them hanging from the wardrobe. What nobody talks about is whether this is the one place in the room where they could have done it from. I know that this is morbid, but, like, nobody investigates. Why is it wardrobe? Why is it not done in a different way? Whether this might have been a pattern. That is, if we are actually suspecting, like, foul play, if we are suspecting somebody's doing this, we kind of need to look into these pieces of information. So from this scene, again, the timeline is a bit more blurred, but what is known, again, Grosskheim kind of tried to scream for help, and some people that were in the rooms that weren't actually at this party rang the police, but even before the police came, Brendan actually, again, tried to take his friend Jake Hughes down and try to perform CPR on him. And here it was said that Jake had some blood on him that he didn't have earlier that night. And nobody could figure out why. Like, was he in a fight? What happened maybe during this suicide? Nobody really figured out why. But when the police reaches the scene, they're like, oh, we, we know this guy. Like, that is Grossheim. He was there at Alex Mullins' death. It was still the same police force because they operate in the area. And they were like, why is this kid here again? Why has he taken another body down? This is something odd. And what comes out of Brandon's mouth doesn't really help. He says, Jake, I took down. Mullins, I didn't. Mullins was there longer. His body was stiff. He just seemed to be like all in a state of haze, just saying this kind of, like, in patches. And the cop just tries to ask him a question, like, do you know? And Brandon responds, are you going to ask, is it like a copycat? 
And the police officer was like, no, I actually wanted to ask, do you think this might be like autoerotic asphyxiation? Because Jake's face was covered in blood. He was like, maybe this was it. And Crossheim said, you know what? I know what you're on about. I know about this autoerotic asphyxiation, but that's just off base. I just don't think that's it. And the cops are like, okay, but you thought it was a copycat. Strange. A bit strange, mate. And at this point, the police isn't looking at Brendan as a sort of a suspect. They're like, okay, yeah, it is hella weird that this guy was in both scenes. But what they're looking at, and this is something I was not aware of until researching this, that is the idea of a cluster. In particular, they're thinking that Mullins' suicide triggered Jake's. And this is apparently known when it comes to suicide, that when one person commits it in the same circle, then other people will follow suit and they will do it in the exact same way. So they might not have seen the two people committing suicide by hanging from a wardrobe is anything suspicious, maybe because of this, because they knew of this concept of a cluster of suicides and one person triggering the other. So here, when it comes to this death, the mother again comes there, the family's devastated, they collect his belongings, the funeral takes place, and then again, they go onto social media to try to trace their loved one's last steps, to see who they chatted with, to see if something could have been done. And when it comes to social media, there was one person that just never stopped looking at the behavior of Brandon Grossheim, and that was Alex's mom. Alex's mom was keeping tabs on Brandon's Facebook and what he posted in the aftermath of these deaths, and she's looking at this video that he posted after Hughes' death, and in the video, it's just him, like, caressing, like, one of his pet cats. But what Alex's mom notices is that he is wearing a shirt that looks really familiar to her. So she's kind of going through like the pictures that Alex, Jake, and Brendan have together. And she's looking at this picture and she's like, this is Jake's shirt that he's wearing. Like, how did he get his clothes? What the hell is going on? He gets a tattoo of like my son's lucky number. And now he's wearing this other suicide victim's shirts. Like, what the hell? So she's like, no, not today. So she contacts Jake Hughes' mom and she's like, hey, just to make you aware, I find this a bit strange. Can you confirm that you were the one to give him the clothes? Because, of course, then it's fine, it's your decision, but I just find this a bit strange. And it seemed from different interviews, like, Jake's mom did say, distribute the clothes to his friends, distribute it to the fraternity. But she allowed for this to happen. She wanted the clothes to be distributed to the people that were close to Jake. She really wanted that to happen. So, again... Brandon here isn't doing anything criminal, he hasn't stolen anything from anybody, but that does not make this normal. And after this death, Alex's mom really started doing deep dives. She was going full-on detective mode on this guy's social media. And she noticed, and I'm glad that she did, because I wouldn't have, she noticed that Brandon looked like a completely different person in every single picture. Like, we all know people like that. I usually know them from researching true crime cases. I'm like, how do you, why do you... People like Jodie Arias, for example, they're like 
fitting the character of the day kind of vibe. Like, Brandon looks completely different with his glasses, like a completely third person when he's, like, in the party here. Like a fourth character when he's with his cat. So this struck the family weird immediately. And not just that, but the rumors started going on in his circle of friends that he might be dating or pursuing, flirting with his friend's ex-girlfriends. So the girlfriends that dated both Alex and Jake. Brandon, of course, denied that. But people found it really strange how he was always there to help these girls out, how he was always there to be, like, the shoulder they could cry on. So at this point, Alex's mom just started pestering him on Facebook. She's just starting to ask him the right questions that she will not get the right answers to because, of course, Brendan was just cursed to her and if he wasn't, maybe he would have incriminated himself. He was smart enough to know that. But the mom would ask questions like, hey, what exactly did you chat to my son and Jake Hughes? What kind of advice were you giving them? Because what I didn't tell you is that when they looked through Jake Hughes' room as well, they found a notebook with Brandon's details, so, like, his name, email, like, phone number, all of that, in, like, one of his notebooks within Jake's wardrobe. So immediately, Alex's mom is thinking, okay, so he's not the best of friends with them, but he is good enough of a friend, and they see him as somebody who they can go to for advice. So, okay, so this is the type of friend he is, but why? He's not a counselor, he's not, like, studying psychology or, like, counseling, anything like that. He's not qualified for this. And, of course, as I said, Brandon was just curt to the mom. He just didn't answer all of her questions. And as this is happening, there are two stories where he gave proper red flags to a couple of women on campus. The first interaction was this woman that started chatting with Brandon on Tinder. What she noticed as well was that Brandon looked completely different with or without glasses. To which I say a lot of us do. Trust me, I look like completely different. My face is shaped differently. Again, depends on what kind of specs I'm wearing. But again, kind of fitting that plot that Alex's mom was stating before. And she found that attractive. She was like, okay, so he could be like a geeky guy and he can be like a completely different person. So there are like two sides to him. So she was like, okay, cool. I'll go hang out with him. And they started hanging out. And on this occasion, they were like just doing homework. And as they're just sitting there doing homework, Brendan's hand goes to this girl's stomach and he just keeps it there. And she's like, um... Okay, I'm kind of getting spooked. So she asks him, what is his hand doing on her stomach? To which he says that he just wanted to hear her breathe. She just said she got a heebie-jeebies, she just got out of there, and she never hung out with him again. To play the devil's advocate again, I kind of understand this. You just lost two people that were your close friends. You must be scared as well. The same as, like, these families said that they were now scared about the siblings of the loved ones that they have lost. You must feel like you need to do everything in your power for them to stay alive. But yet again, one of the creepiest stories that I have read. 
And because of all of this, Grosskheim started just abusing alcohol and drugs even more. He kind of disconnected from his own family as well now. He said he just didn't want to worry them. He didn't want them to worry about anything that was happening at campus. And he just kind of was drowning in drugs and alcohol. And on one such evening, again, he was hanging out with this girl who was a friend of his and a friend of Hugh's. I'm not sure if this was like his ex or anything. There are no further details here. And Brandon kind of had like his head in this girl's lap. And he just said if she doesn't sleep with him, he doesn't have anything else to live for. So she felt like... If I don't sleep with him, I'm going to lose another friend. When people questioned Brandon after, he said he was using sex as coping mechanism, but he said he just thought he was hooking up with this girl. No, that's not it. That is manipulation and that is also rape from how I see it and how the world should probably see it. Around this time, people also started chatting about the communications that they would have with Brandon. Everybody kind of started talking, like, on the down low, like, hey, when you talk to Brandon, does he give you this, like, peacemaker vibe? Does he call himself a peacemaker? Does he always offer you advice, but always starts talking about your moods, your feelings, and always kind of makes you rely on him for any help that you need? And then this other person would be like, yeah, that's exactly what happens. How did you know? Is this a freaking pattern? What the hell is going on? So a couple of friends started spotting that they were all depressed or have received counseling or have publicly spoken about their depression. And what they all had in common was that Brandon would kind of start chatting them up about it. And with every single person, it seems like he was giving them instructions. The parents would call this in this lawsuit step-by-step instructions on how to use their own free will to deal with depression. But all of these friends, as they were chatting this way, they were also really worried about Grossheim. They saw him just drowning in alcohol and drugs. They saw him go to counseling, but then when they would kind of start to question, like, hey, did you speak about yourself in counseling? Are you getting any better? He would just say, nah, I actually dropped out because it just felt like they were going through a checklist. Like, it wasn't really helping me at all. I don't want to waste any more money on it. But Brandon would say, don't worry about me. You know, I have these cats. They're like emotional support animals for him. So his friends were really freaked out and they kind of started following him around the campus, just like accompanying him to school, to like different classes, just to see that he doesn't actually hurt himself. And then the fall of 2016 comes around. A guy named Joshua Thomas started attending the university. He was an 18-year-old freshman at Truman State. He was another smart cook. He was another straight-A student, large group of friends, extremely popular. But he also had a history of depression and was finding college a lot harder than he thought he would. Thomas knew that he was gay, but when he visited a counselor and was kind of speaking about, you know, the issues of coming out, he said that the counselors told him to think about himself as bisexual, like, as if he doesn't know what he's talking about. So he said, okay, well, then I'm gonna stop counseling altogether because you clearly don't want to help me, don't want to instruct me and are just telling me that I'm something that I know that I'm not. So he was really struggling with this and he wanted to get himself into this fraternity. 
I'm just gonna briefly touch upon this because I don't fully understand it. I think it's called hazing. So if you want to join a fraternity or a sorority, you have to pledge to join. And then you kind of have to like prove yourself with like this week or however long with like these interesting activities. Americans, feel free to come for me in the comments. I don't understand the concept and it also sounds cruel as hell. <laughs> it literally sounds like every American movie that you would watch where you're like, this is cruel. Unnecessarily cruel, why does it happen? So Brandon Grossheim met Thomas when he was a pledge, when he wanted to join this fraternity, and he advised him not to join. He said, like, I understand you want friends, you want somebody to understand you, but these might not be the right kind of friends. And he told him, like, the initiation process to a fraternity is really cruel. You might be blindfolded, you might be asked to, like, walk in a line, you might be asked to, like, participate in some dodge activities, and also you might be punched in a dead region. Now, Brandon did give this piece of advice to Thomas, but he never adhered to any of the device. He never gave advice to himself. So, Brandon was really spiraling out of control at this time. In September, however, the fraternity president and another one of his friends actually contacted the police. And the police came on campus because of Brandon Grossheim and how he was acting. Everybody in the fraternity said that Brandon is just out of his mind. He has been acting crazy for a while now, and they need some form of intervention. They wanted him evaluated because they thought he might be the next one to commit suicide. And they called the police because Brandon took some acid, and he was having a trip where he just started talking about death and started talking about how there's nothingness that comes after it. And everybody thought, okay, this is prime time, we need to do something about this, otherwise another one of us is going to end up dead. Because of this, and after this evaluation, Brandon was actually asked, well, rather forced, to move to this off-campus apartment so that he isn't as close to everybody else. It's affecting his own mental health, and it's affecting everybody else's. But he kept in touch with Josh, and a couple of months later, Josh invited him to this party that the fraternity was having, and as soon as Brandon appeared, everybody kind of just immediately looked at this and was like, no, we don't want him here. Like, he isn't welcome here any longer. So Brandon just left that party not to cause any trouble. But after a couple of hours, people noticed that Thomas was getting really distressed and he really needed Brandon to come over. So one of them just rang Brandon and told him, Brandon, you need to get here. You're the only person he wants to talk to. A month later, so now we are in April 2017, a fraternity member is getting out of the shower, they're getting ready for their shift, and they're just waking up the girlfriend, just being like, hey, I need to get ready, go to work. And the girlfriend just says, hey, what is that underneath your door? It seems like a piece of paper. There are two different accounts. So this legal document said that the note stated, smoke a bowl for me. And then there was $48 attached to the note. And then I think it was the New York Times article that stated that the note said, smoke a bowl in my memory. This note was written in the pink highlighter and it was signed off with Josh's name and people said like it was definitely his handwriting. These two just manically start looking for Josh all over the place. 
Here, what nobody talks about is the time. According to the legal document, when these two woke up, it was around 4 a.m. So they start searching as soon as they have seen this note, and they ended up in this library on the campus. And they see this laptop that was just playing music, so it was really eerie atmosphere, and they notice it is Josh's laptop. So they just approach it to investigate further. Stuck to this laptop was another sticky note that just said, read me, in the pink highlighter. And it seemed like he was in the middle of writing this essay about trauma of sexual assault in his high school years and how it was destroying his life. And after the portion of this essay, they found a heading that said, update 6th of April 2017, The virus. It just became too strong. I'm so sorry. I just can't do it anymore. I love you all, but I lost. And the timestamp on this document was 4.12 a.m. So these two now know they might still be able to save a life here. So they just continue frantically searching and they find Josh in this storage room where some extra mattresses were held. But unfortunately, it was too late to save him because Josh Thomas was found hanging in this storage room. And here, when the police comes to the scene, they immediately notice something. And that is that there was like another piece of paper that seems to have fallen out of Josh's pocket. So they leave that piece of paper, they uncrumble it, and they see Brandon Grossheim's email address on it. So this was different in a sense of how the body was found. Also, Josh hung himself with a dog leash. But then again, when you compare it to Hughes, to the second John Doe, Brendan Grossheim's details are quite literally here on this person. So the police here is very much familiar with who Brendan Grossheim is, and they just go to interrogate him. They straight away just go to his apartment. Now, the police is approaching his apartment, and they notice immediately from a distance that the doorknob is missing here. So, the police officer kind of just looks through the gap where the doorknob should be, like that hole, and he sees that Grosskheim is lying on the floor as if he is doing the same thing, just like observing who it is that is looking at him from the other side of that hole. And then... As the police officer knocks and pushes the door, Brandon is just already creepily standing up right behind his officers and he's like, yeah, welcome into my room. Everything this guy thinks is appropriate behavior is driving me insane. As soon as they walked into his room, the police officer notices like a vein on Grossheim's neck that is just like bulging. You know when you have like an expressive vein on either your forehead or your neck that just keeps pounding when you're anxious, when you know something is wrong? Well, that is the impression that this officer got from just how he was behaving, being on the floor, and then just immediately getting up to welcome them into the room. Was he maybe expecting the police on this occasion? This time, the police officer actually came with this outside mental health counselor as well, so that they can interrogate Brandon in the room. And immediately, well, now the police is definitely looking at him not as a suspect, maybe as a person of interest. They just find it odd that this man is connected to now three suicides on the same campus. And here, when the police officers mentioned that note that they found on Josh's person and that had Crossheim's detail on it, 
Brenton just felt really emotional and he said, my phone was actually broken during the last month. And he just thought like how Josh must have felt like that Brendan failed him. Like he wasn't there to be in touch as much as he could have. So he had this email on his person, possibly wanted to approach him for help, but he just didn't. And then Brandon wasn't there in time to prevent this from happening. And Brandon doesn't really help it. Like, I understand the eagerness in these situations and probably a lot of us that consume this kind of content on a daily basis would kind of try to intersect and ask questions that the police officers might find suspicious. So Brandon here asks immediately if he can have any more details on the crime. Like, how did they find him? Where did they find him? How did this happen? And the police is like, we can't, like, divulge this information, sir. Especially not to you. Like, no. And then he just sat in silence, and the next thing that came out of his mouth is how bizarre it is. There's, like, a lot of people that are dying around me. This mental health counselor says, you know that comment that you just mentioned? Yes, it does happen that three people around you have been suicidal. So if somebody was to approach you, like, you know, when your friends would approach you and they would say, we are having these kind of thoughts, like, what do you tell them? What is sort of the advice that you give them? To which Brandon responded, he would give them a step-by-step advice for coping with depression. He said he would try to help them, but then in the end that he understood that everybody has the right to exert their own free will. So that is what they left with. Again, this step-by-step thing is never fully explained. I know that he did give them the permission to go through his files, through his social media, but this has never been made public. This isn't like Michelle Carter's case the conversations, like any emails, any threads online about this step-by-step instruction, about this guy's tactical approach to depression, it has never been made public. So, this is what the legal document that the families have filed mentions, and this is apparently what he said during these interrogations, but it's never been made clear what this actually means. And Grossham actually described this to the New York Times journalist when he interviewed him for this piece. And he said, no, when they came into my room, I was tripping on acid. And he was desperately trying to hide an ounce of weed that he had on him. So he was just losing his mind about getting arrested, but just for a different crime. So after this, he goes to a friend's apartment and just smokes that weed and gets drunk. And he just told his friend, like, I was just celebrating not getting arrested. Which, again, wrong term. It can be misconstrued. Tell them what you would have been arrested for. So, of course, these friends start again looking at him and whether he might be connected to these suicides something that nobody mentions but that I noticed personally when researching this is that this step-by-step coping might actually apply to Brandon himself. Because yet again, in this case, what he does next is he turns to social media. He again, whether he posts videos or whether he just goes on the suicide victim's page and just posts like an emotional commemoration to their friend, this kind of seems to be 
a pattern where he inserts himself into the grief. He's always there for funerals, for memorials. He commemorates them in some way, whether it is on Facebook, whether it is by tattooing number seven, whether it is taking their clothes and wearing their clothes and making sure that their girlfriends are taken care of. Allegedly, then it seems like the third step is him going on to social media, making some form of posts or just making sure that their accounts are memorialized and that they're not used any longer. And then it seems like the fourth step is either him like returning to drugs, to alcohol as a coping mechanism and just maybe meeting somebody else, getting involved and talking with other people who are suffering with these issues. But all is done in like a very unhealthy way. I know that people do set things in place once they grieve. And I think there are a lot of ways where this is done in a healthy way. But this just strikes me odd when researching this story, that it seems like he has applied step-by-step to himself and how he has been processing grief as well, if that makes sense. So in this case, after the passing of Joshua Thomas, he turned to Facebook and has written up this post on Joshua's wall. I love you, bud. I know I told you that a lot, and it made me happy to know that you knew I meant it. We've been through a lot together, and we grew very close. It really upsets me to lose you. I was so glad to be working with you, because it gave me more time to hang out. I'll miss you more than you'll ever know. I hope that you're in a better place now and that you found a peace of mind. Again, I love you. As this is happening, Alex Mullins' mom, Melissa, is not taking this shit no longer. She's like, okay, this is now the third death I have been following because this just seems like something is off on this campus. And also she felt, why the hell isn't Truman State responding? There is no plan to tackle this, to address this. What are you doing about this situation? So Melissa starts pestering the university. She starts demanding answers. While that is happening, Brendan is trying to move on with his life and he has found a new job. He's working at this place called Wooden Nickel, where he's like serving and washing the dishes. And he became buddies with this cook at the place whose name was Alex Vogt. And after work, sometimes Vogt would invite him to his flat. Because it just so happens that Vogt lived across the hall from him. Because you see this house that Brandon has actually moved into once they kind of kicked him out from this fraternity was owned by Vogt's family. So, of course, Vogt just lived there. And then he realized, okay, we actually work together. We live really close by. Come around. We're just going to play some board games. Just have a couple of drinks. You know, just chill out. So on one such night, they're hanging out, and then Alex says, hey, my girlfriend is coming over. So Brandon is like, of course, no problem, I'm gonna leave, I'm just gonna chill in my flat. And then the next morning, the girlfriend just wakes up, screaming, yelling, banging on Brandon's door, asking him to come in and to call the police straight away. Because Alex Vogt has just hung himself in the loft of his flat. Here, the police is on the scene pretty quickly as well. They just notice Brandon again. And at this point, they don't know what else to do. I mean, here again, it wasn't him that found Alex dead. But Brandon is again acting really strange. And he's asking the police officers if he can see the body before it goes with the police, before it goes to autopsy. And they're just like, no, why would you want to see that? 
And this is really the moment when people started having opinions. And they were either on the side of, this guy has something to do with it, or they were on the side of, okay, no, he's just like an innocent bystander. And we should actually be focusing about why isn't the university doing anything to help out with mental health. That was actually the opinion of Alex Vogt's girlfriend. She said, yes, you could look at this like, oh, save yourselves. There is a predator who is after all of the students and chatting them up. Watch your children and lock them at home. Or you could look at the bigger picture and look at the issue here where the university just hasn't done anything with regards to prioritizing mental health, finding better support for these students, including Brendan himself. But then the families, of course, saw Brendan as somebody who was preying on the vulnerable. They saw him as somebody who was intentionally seeking people who were struggling. And a ton of students did agree with the parents. There was one person that actually compared him to Ted Bundy. Because Brendan subjectively isn't that bad looking, he would be a charming guy who would get people to feel sorry for him, to want to hang out with him and to, like, help each other out. And this one friend in particular spoke up after Alex's death because they were friends with both Alex and Brendan. And they said, like, just when you hear Brendan talk about these things, it just seems like the opinion that nobody has on suicide. Like, the whole premise that suicide is upon your own free will, and if you decide that is something you should do, you should go ahead with it. That is your personal choice, and nobody should try to stop you. They just thought, no, but why wouldn't you do everything in your power to stop this person from committing suicide? They just thought that was not a normal thought process when it comes to this topic. And if he was just saying all of this to these vulnerable people... Well, yes, of course, they're going to normalize that in their head because they are already at a vulnerable stage in their life. Yet again, the police doesn't do anything here. They are not treating Brandon as a suspect. And three months after Alex Vogt's death, there was another person that was living in his apartment by this point. Glenna, who now lived across the hall from Brandon, was a dog trainer. She was 29. And on this particular day, on July the 5th, around 3.30 p.m., Brandon thought he heard like a thud, like somebody just fell across the hall from him. So he again went to investigate. And the door was just open, so he kind of pushed it, picked it, he was like, hey, everything okay? Can I help in any way? And Glenna just said like, no, it's fine. I just slipped and fell. Like, you can go back to your flat. So he did. Like, the two of them didn't even know each other at this point. So they weren't like friends or acquaintances or anything like that here. But then just about an hour later, Brendan got a knock on his door because the police came to tell him that his neighbor from across the hall has been found dead. Her ex-boyfriend just came from work or elsewhere and he found his girlfriend dead. And there were just like pill bottles, alcohol bottles everywhere around her, around the flat. Her cause of death was later contributed to liver hemorrhage and alcohol intoxication. But Brendan yet again was most probably the last person to see Glenna alive. And yet again, the police are at this guy's door. And they're looking at him. And he has scratches all over his arms. And of course, the implication here is that somebody tried to defend themselves. These are the defensive wounds, that they should check those up. But the police just bought a story that 
This was the doing of his cats. He lived with multiple cats. You can see them all around the flat. And his cats scratched him recently. Not just that he had scratches, but he also had like a burn on his arm, which again could have been defensive wound. But he said, I work at this restaurant. Sometimes I'm asked to like take stuff out of the oven. Sometimes I'm asked to actually cook and then serve it to the customers. So I have burnt myself while doing that. The police took pictures of it, but he didn't want to submit to a DNA swab. Yet again, because he considers himself to be a crackhead at this point, or just somebody that uses drugs and stuff, and he didn't want them to know that, because then again, they might be able to arrest him on those kind of charges. So he just didn't submit a DNA swab at this point. And here also, they are looking at this guy more and more as a suspect, because here they actually ask him to go in for a lie detector test. So he was submitted to a lie detector test. He failed that, but the police never asked him to retake it and never took him as a suspect after that. And he was also asked to take this computer stress analyzer test. And that test detected deception when he was asked questions about Glenna's death. But yet again, he was never questioned any further. And he was ruled out because his DNA was not on Glenna in any form. So they were like, okay, it must not have been him. Now, two years have passed without Brendan ever being seen as a suspect. And the parents have had enough. This never sat right with Alex Malins' mom. And she wanted to bring a change. And after she speaks to the police and she realizes they're not treating him as a suspect in any way, she contacts Nicole Gorovsky, who was a former federal prosecutor that specialized in crimes against children. And now Nicole ran her own law firm that focused on victims' rights. And Gorovsky was really moved with this case and she definitely thought something shady is going on. So on behalf of the Thomases and Malins' parents, they filed a civil suit alleging that Alpha Kappa Lambda and Truman State were negligent in their son's deaths. And they alleged that they were negligent because they knew Grosham posed a threat, but they had done nothing to stop him and nothing to aid him or other students. The document wanted a jury trial, and they wanted Grossham to be prosecuted for voluntary manslaughter under Missouri law, or knowingly assisting Mullins and Thomas in the commission of self-murder. As they're forming this lawsuit, the police does one last covering their ass attempt, as described by the parents. Because in September 2019, they actually go to interview Brandon again. I completely understand why they call it the cover your ass interview, because the weirdest interrogation proceeded. The only information that was available was that the police asked him two questions. The first one was, why did he give a poster to another friend of his in the meantime that stated, die master? To which Grossheim, of course, had the answer. And he said this friend of his was really good at this game that is called Beer Die, which required, like, some hand-eye coordination. So that's why he gave him the poster. And the police is like, cool, good story, bro, check. Moving on. The second question that they asked him was, why did people call him the Animal Whisperer? 
And he was like, oh, that's because of my love for cats. Any further questions? The police is like, no, this is legitimate, great interrogation that we have just had. If you need anything in terms of counseling, in terms of any help, just call us. But the police force won't necessarily be the next number that Brendan will have to dial. Because, you see, when Gorovsky filed that lawsuit, she also went to the media. She made it public, and in 2019, this story imploded. It was on BuzzFeed, it was on CNN, it was on local news. He was described as a deaf-obsessed Missouri Fred brother. The news publications published that he had the keys, he had the access to all of these flats. And all of them described him as this charismatic sociopath. So Brandon had to hire his own attorney to fight this backlash. Brandon actually didn't have the money to hire his own lawyer, so his family launched a GoFundMe page and they stated that he was falsely accused, that he was living through a nightmare and that people should help the family out. So 27 people donated nearly $2,700. And due to this and some of his earnings, he was now working at this pizzeria in the area. He managed to hire some local defense attorney. Now let's talk a bit about this lawsuit and what the families wanted. So they wanted the jury trial. They wanted him charged for at least voluntary manslaughter because that's sort of the only thing that could be done in this kind of situation. But they were also suing the Truman State University. The family said the school was aware that both boys were depressed and still gave Grosskheim the full access to them. Important fact is that this petition stated no texts, no emails, no conversations between Brendan and the victim. But it stated this step-by-step counseling by him and advice on how to commit suicide. But there were a couple of things that this lawsuit did not state. Before this New York Times journalist met with Brendan, he actually interviewed a couple of these police officers, and he also went through the petition through this legal document. And he kind of noticed a couple of discrepancies. So remember that intervention? Well, the petition and the legal document stated that Brendan was having dark thoughts. So immediately that can be misconstrued that his dark thoughts and that he might harm others. But what he didn't state, and what the police reports have stated, is that Brendan actually indicated that he might hurt himself. And he even asked one of the fraternity brothers to check up on him later in the night. If you remember, Grossheim actually mentioned the step-by-step advice about dealing with depression, but he mentioned it when he was interviewed by the counselor in Thomas's death. And this petition didn't mention that this was made in the conversation to the counselor when he was actually seeking help. So it just seemed like they were picking and choosing what to put in this petition and what can be sort of misconstrued and seen as more evil. And it seemed like they were omitting a lot of details that would portray Brendan as just a guy that was there to help. Another thing that was omitted from this petition was this instance when the police had it in the report. The police actually went out to that pizzeria when Brandon was working. I don't, I can't pronounce the place. I think it's Payai, something along those lines in Kirksville. 
And this was two years after Thomas's death. And the police went to Brandon directly and told him, hey, this guy that you were in fraternity with, he went off the medication and everybody suspected he might do harm to himself. Can you help us track him down? And Brandon just volunteered. He helped them out. So it's really weird that the police would do that if they saw him as a suspect at any point, that they would seek help from Brandon directly. And that just kind of wasn't mentioned in this petition. Like, nothing mentioned the petition showed any, like, good positive characteristics that Brandon also had. So once this suit was filed, Truman's filed a motion to dismiss because they stated that the university cannot be sued because of the sovereign immunity. And basically saying that their premise liability doesn't apply because Truman doesn't actually own the fraternity house in question. So it's like it didn't happen on our territory, we can't be blamed for it. And the Alpha Kappa Lambda, the fraternity, is actually saying, well, just because these suicides happen on our premises doesn't mean that the national organization is responsible for them. So they said this lawsuit didn't present the facts to indicate that this national organization was aware of what Grosscom was doing, and as such, they shouldn't have the legal responsibility to supervise all of the tenants and keep them safe. So everybody is just, at this point, trying to pass the blame to somebody else. And as for the university, their reaction to this was to announce a partnership with a non-profit that works with colleges on mental health issues and suicide prevention. What this meant was that they introduced round-the-clock counseling in multiple languages, and students can now select a therapist with the gender and the sexual orientation of their choice. But from the standpoint of Nicole Gorovsky, the attorney, and the parents, they just feel like this has been swept under the rug. They have had one symposium on mental health and have just moved on. They have never informed people in any of these situations, even after free fraternity students have died on campus, that maybe one person was responsible. And nobody warned the parents, the students, the fellow fraternity members that there was somebody who was friends with all three students who might have manipulated them to commit suicide. Let's have a digest right now. Before I tell you where this story stands at this very moment and what Brandon Gosheim is doing with his life right now, let's just break down everything into two sections. One... Brendan might be guilty of this. And the second scenario, Brendan might be innocent of this and might not have been involved at all. So if looking into the guilty scenario, we need to think about both the access and the opportunity because Brendan had both. He was the house manager. He had a key to every single room, every single flat. He could have gotten in, gotten out, and even if they had taken DNA from the scene, which they haven't done, another problem I have with this case, well, Brandon's DNA would have been on it. He was friends with them. He had the access. It could have been on a doorknob. It could have been just anywhere around their flats. He was the last person to see most of these people before their death. He knew that victim though one was suffering from depression. He was asked to watch this person in order for them not to do anything. Wherever he could, he would meddle with the scene or he would be asking questions, being interested 
about a crime. So if you remember Alex Mullins, he actually did go in before even the police was there. The second one as well, he is the one that is trying to revive the person before the police and the paramedics are actually even on the scene. It would either be that or right in the aftermath, he would ask, could he see the body? When it comes to the last victim, he had some scratches on him that he managed to justify. He had that burn that, again, he justified in this case. And also, in all five instances, he was either one of the close friends or one of the neighbors, co-workers. He could have done more in a sense of trying to help them get mental health counseling. That didn't include him helping them, but somebody qualified. Then we have the step-by-step process that I have spoken about personally from what I saw from Brendan's own behavior, so how he dealt with every single situation, the fact that he wore victim's clothes, the fact that he tattooed that onto himself, the fact that he posted a lot on social media, that he would just insert himself in every situation when it comes to grief in the aftermath of these suicides. He had that fascination with death and would surround himself with other fraternity members who had either depression or like other mental health issues. And he would start up all of the conversations with talking about their mood. He wanted to be seen as a peacemaker. He wanted to be seen as someone who they could turn to for advice. Another thing is the fact that his name or his email or his contact details were just in the vicinity of these bodies, like right there on the scene. And what I find extremely troubling and what nobody talks about here is the possibility of rape or sexual assault. Like, I understand if this girl didn't want to report this to the police, but this is the one crime where you could actually pursue, where you could actually get him for because voluntary manslaughter is very murky territory. Like, there are not that many cases and definitely not that many famous cases and nothing of this sort that I have ever read online, but something like rape or sexual assault is something that can be pursued. Now, the second scenario, the one where Brandon is completely innocent. He just happened to be their friends and he happened to be at the right place because he technically lived and worked there, but just at the wrong time. And what I wrote here is basically, where is the evidence? If this was to go to jury, if this was to go to trial, how are we actually getting to that voluntary manslaughter sentence? In Michelle Carter's case, they had the array of texts. They had the length of calls. They could actually prove, no, she was talking to him on the phone. It lasted for this long. Here, unless it just happens that it's not made public, we don't have this. We just have the insinuation that there were, like, step-by-step guidance towards how to deal with depression, which could have been an array of multiple things. Missouri law considers a person who knowingly assists another in the commission of self-murder to have committed voluntary manslaughter. So you gotta prove that he knowingly assisted it. So here we have the knowingly part, like he knew that they were depressed, he knew that they had mental health issues, and he should have probably done more in terms of getting help for his friends. But the assisting part of that sentence is the one where I'm like, if this was to have gone to trial, I am not sure that you would have gotten the outcome that you wanted, unfortunately, unless there is something concrete. 
what doesn't go into the favor of the petition and the lawsuit is the fact that nobody collected DNA from the scene because they all saw it as suicides. Again, his DNA would have been justified even if they have done this. So even when we were to think like, okay, how would this look at trial? I feel like even if you had witnesses at a trial, at a stand, like it would have just been seen as hearsay. Because even just look at this video, it is made of maybe 20% of like actual factual evidence. And then everything else is just like what people have said, what the fraternity brothers have said. Details from police interrogations, details from his counseling sessions. There is not much concrete evidence to go on here. He lived there, he was friends with all of them, and he was just the person that worked as a house manager and was the person with a key that wanted to hang out with his friends at that particular time. And also, yes, there was access, there was opportunity, but what would have been the motive here? What is the motivation? What is the bigger picture? He was seen as a suspect from the get-go here. If he just wanted to insert himself into somebody else's grief, if he just wanted to play the victim, yes, it could have been that. Most definitely could have been that. But think about his age. For something like this to happen at a college age, that needed to be like the most calculated plan ever. And for somebody, sorry to say, Brendan, but who was on drugs, who was boozing all the time, who was not in the right state of mind, I just don't see the guy as the caliber who would be calculated to that level. So I just feel like if this was to reach the jury and if this was to reach the court, either the families would need like stellar witnesses, would need like his best friends just stating what they have seen and what they have heard if they don't have any like texts or like emails or anything of that sort, or something crucial and actually factual needs to come out. It needs to be a great, solid story to actually sell to the jury. I mean, people have been convicted for less, don't get me wrong, and this is definitely really dodgy, sus behavior on his part. Like Some of the things we spoke about today are the weirdest reactions I have heard somebody have. But yet again, if he was to have a half-decent defense attorney, they can just play it off as that. This is how he reacts. He has a fascination with true crime, with death. Don't we all? Because again, this is a modern case. So where is Brandon Grossheim today? When the New York Times journalist met up with him to publish this article that came around a month ago, they met up at a coffee shop in Missouri, so he's still around that area. He has moved into the house with his girlfriend, and she was present during this interview, and she actually, right away, without the journalist even asking her, said, if I believed he had done it, I wouldn't be with him. To which Brandon, because again, he does not understand the sense of humor and what to say and when and when when things are on the record, his response was, put your headphones on, I don't want you to get subpoenaed. Which I'm like, Brenda, Brenda, read the room, for the love of God, you're a few years older now. And he confessed to this journalist during this conversation that there might have been a cause for his fascination with death. So when he was in high school, he actually discovered his grandma has passed away. So his grandma had cancer and his mother and him went to visit her and he just went into the room and his mom followed and couldn't prevent him from seeing that his grandma has actually died. 
So the journalist here asks him, okay, so if this was so upsetting and stuck with you for all this time, why didn't you then wait for the police? Why didn't you ask for somebody else to go into the rooms when you discovered your friend's bodies? And he said that it would have been equally traumatizing for somebody else. So he just wanted to do it so that nobody else has to suffer through the trauma that he has already experienced when he was younger. And during this conversation, Brendan actually tells these journalists that after all of those five cases, after the lawsuit has been filed, because this story is truly more fucked up than any fictional piece you will read, there was yet another suicide at Truman University where he was still studying. And this suicide made him turn his life around. Because here, the parents never blamed him. The parents never saw him as a suspect. And not just that, but here, the victim's best friend actually turned to him and asked him for advice of how to deal with grief. And this is where Brandon was shaken up and decided to listen to his own advice. So he actually quit using drugs. He quit drinking at this point. And this is where he said he tried to come to terms with his friend's deaths. He said, My friends had either a moment of weakness or a moment where they just lost everything. Hope or joy or happiness. Something horrible happened when they stayed in that moment. I had no control over that moment. I just have to accept it as their choice, and I never wanted any of them to make such a horrible choice. And as for the lawsuit, he said that it's really hard for him to make any big plans in his life with the lawsuit just looming around his head, and that he needs to trust the court system. Especially because, as of August 2020, the judge dismissed Truman University as a defendant, and that left only him and the fraternity house to possibly face any charges. So where that lawsuit is at the time is that Alex Mullins' mom is actually appealing that dismissal, and she still hopes that this is going to reach the jury one day. And as for Grossheim, he is now moved into the house with his girlfriend, and during the pandemic, they would just cook, they would do normal things. He still kept his job at a pizza place, and he doesn't want to return to college necessarily. He thinks he would make a good contractor. And he said the ideal thing for him would be obviously everything that happened in Kirksville, except for this current relationship that he is in, to just be a thing of the past. And for him to just be able to move on, and for this to be wiped off his record in a way, even though he hasn't been charged for it yet. But that is, most probably, the longest video so far. And the story of the Missouri's cluster of suicides. What do you think about this story? Is he either the most unlucky person ever, or is he the most heinous, the most callous, calculated college individual that you have encountered? I don't know. The only thing I can tell you is that if I have sit down here today and told you a story where this ended with a charge, that that wouldn't sit right with me either, in terms of the evidence and all of the articles that I have read so far. Personally, I definitely think that the families should be compensated for just their grief, the emotional distress that this has caused that both the university and the fraternity should be held accountable for this because 
that is bullshit that you know that's national organization that the university can't control the fraternity and all of these situations where they slept it under the rug where they try to pass the blame onto everybody also maybe that police department needs to kind of reopen this as a case and just actually show us what kind of information they have got whether they have been negligent or not whether they have more information that they haven't shared with the public because that might help these families bring this to the trial but as for where it stands right now without any concrete evidence i don't think this is a clear cut case at all but that is where i'm leaving you with this case drop down in the comments what do you think do you think it's clear cut for you do you see him as innocent or guilty what do you think about this case would you personally be happy if he had been charged with voluntary manslaughter and if there is a single note that I would like you to leave this video on today is never, never play a hero. Either if you have the urge to do it, it means you need some mental health counseling yourself. Or if you are in any of these situations, do not feel inclined to give advice to other people yourself. It will never lead to anything good. Unless you are 100% qualified, which he definitely wouldn't have been at a college age. And even then I would say like consult somebody else if this is a friend of yours. This is why therapists don't usually like consult their own friends. There is always the outside third party that comes into play and is the actual counselor to this friend. Again, something he might not have known. But just stop acting as heroes altogether. Quit that as a concept. That is my message to the world. And don't forget, if you like this kind of video, if you like the long form of some cases that have never been covered, they're like shadow banned, then give this video a big thumbs up, big thumbs up, and subscribe to the channel. Yeah, I want to leave the customer service job and to do this full time. And, you know, commit to it between the quality and the quantity. But for now, I will see you guys next week, I guess, with yet another long and weird-ass story. And you stay safe, okay? Stay safe. Are you doing the COVID? Oh, God. <laughs> Just, I hate saying stay safe because so many people say it during the freaking pandemic and that is not it. That is not what I do. It's no copycat shit here, no stay cool and there's cucumbers or something okay on to outtakes on to the outtakes let's see the fact of the day natalie portman not only trained for a year as a dancer to prepare for the role of black swan but paid for the training out of her own pocket until the film found investors what the fuck don't they have a budget to begin with oh well i hope she got paid for black swan black swan was like a huge production <laughs> conclusions on the spot let's do this today let's do it mm. 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 let's see if this has my whole head in the shot that would be great man i just watched the old musk on snl and even he has more pizzazz than me he's a rich person man he can fake it. he can have somebody train him what do you have you have no money you don't have people to train you how to behave with camera clearly First time is the charm, is my forehead in the fucking shot. I do this every week. Every week. <laughs> I can't deal with this information. I can't deal with it. It's like what the, the interactions that this guy finds normal. I'm just, I'm just, 
I just can't believe that I have not heard this story before. Like he wanted to hear if she can breathe. Like what the fuck? What in? What in a you on Netflix character? What in a Jeffrey Dahmer? Like what the fuck is going on? Is Missourians the right word? <laughs> Idiot. Any Missourians watching? Is it called hazing because you're in a state of haze after you get, you know, punched in that area? Because <laughs> that would make sense to me. Or when you're blindfolded and then they take it off and you're like, oh my god, I'm so hazy. Wow, yeah, I think about origins of these things. America's gonna come for me yet again. Don't punch people in the D-I-C-K area. Do not, do not. Uh, a rarely known fact about me is that I told my brother not to hold his laptop on this area if he wants to have children, because I read it somewhere that, like, you become less fertile if, like, you hold technology in that area. I don't know, it kills spermies or something. I don't know. I'm not a fucking biologist or a chemist. That's not, that's not who those people are. Mm. Biologists don't fucking do this, control radiation. Radiation. Wow, okay, your IQ is really coming on the surface right now, so it would be really great time for you to shut the hell up and continue with the story. 